In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In college, I worked at an electronics store, and sometimes I'd get stuck in the music and movies department selling CDs. This department had a lot of theft, and it never made any money anyway because all of our music deals were loss leaders. We'd advertise whatever new Britney Spears album was coming out for less than $10 just so you'd come into the store and hopefully be distracted enough to spend several hundred dollars on a Palm Pilot or a new TV. If you've ever seen an ad for an incredible deal on a car and then gone down to the dealership to be told, oh, that one, yeah, we had one at that price, but it sold. Let me show you something like it. Marketers call it the loss leader. The rest of us call it the bait and switch. It seems too good to be true because it is too good to be true. This helps feed the pervasive cynicism that afflicts humanity. This cynicism is rooted deep in our history, stretching back to Eve's misapprehension of God in the garden. Adam and Eve's failure in Eden was almost entirely a failure of their theological imagination. They were able to be convinced that if they were going to become like God, they'd need to figure it out themselves because God is, what, stingy? Selfish? Last week I spoke about how we're all afflicted by the restlessness of shame. Our sense of shame is looped into our view of God, which for many of us is the worst version of a petty, vindictive mother-in-law constantly looking over our shoulder, always ready to offer up a dour critique of our performance, ready to pounce at the slightest failure and remind us that we were never really part of the family. This fundamental disbelief in God's goodness is one of the fruits of the original sin. It's not the only fruit, but it is one of the foundational ones. It's not one that all people in all places and all times are held captive to, but it's one that many of us revert to often. This pull towards cynicism and disbelief is so strong that we can even read something like the parable of the sower and come away biting our nails about being the wrong kind of soil. I have to confess, this is my first instinct, and it's one I've probably preached before. But as I've listened this week to the other voices in the quartet of the lectionary, I've begun to see the deeper, mysterious truth of the seed and the soil in Jesus' parable. I'd like to work a loom here and weave together some observations about our text as a way of understanding the nature of the kingdom and the profligate goodness of God. First things first, God is a bad farmer. I grew up in rural Oregon where it's common to see farm equipment on the little two-lane highways getting from one part of the farm to the other. In all my years living there, I never once saw a farmer trying to till the road. Never saw irrigation set up to water the ditch next to the highway. Never saw a farmer wasting seed anywhere outside the field with the good soil. But the sower in the parable sows the seed of the kingdom with about as much efficiency and accuracy as Al Pacino at the end of Scarface. He just scatters it everywhere almost as if he doesn't particularly care about his ROI. The seed, Jesus tells us, is the word of the kingdom, which is both the gospel message that Christ came to proclaim and Christ himself, who is the very word of God. And in the incarnation, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, begins the work of scattering the seed, the Christ, throughout the whole earth. There was no planning meeting ahead of time so they could work out which people groups would respond best, which areas would really make the farm work worth it. God's farming method is bonkers. He's apparently unconcerned about running out of seed and not even too terribly bothered by results, at least not as we might measure them. Which brings us to one of the core strangenesses of Christianity. Seeds are small, some of them negligibly so, 
I eat seeds for breakfast, and some of them are small enough to get stuck in my teeth. Seeds don't capture our attention. We walk on them, pass them, over them, without even thinking about them. Seeds work in an absolutely mysterious way. In order for them to work, they must be buried down deep in the dirt, away from our ability to assess how they're doing. Seeds do their best work when they're hidden. The work that seeds do is the work of descending to their own death as a way of sprouting out new life. God's kingdom work is small. It's hidden. It's scattered throughout the entire world, but it's often imperceptible and not conducive to year-end reports and graphs. In fact, for all we can see, it's as if the work of God has simply dropped dead down in the dirt. If there were shareholder meetings for Kingdom of God Incorporated, the investors would demand that the board put up a vote of no confidence. God is a bad farmer. God's also a bad business manager. Our Isaiah passage is as ludicrous as it seemed on the face of it. There's no footnote here. No struggle with the original Hebrew where we find out that actually the corner market is letting us buy on credit, but one day our tab will come due. God's grocery and general store, from our perspective, must be some fraudulent front. He's got a cash register in there, but we've never seen him open it. If the auditors came asking to look at the books so they could figure out who to lean on to get what's owed, God, it seems, would shrug. We don't keep those kind of records. And anyway, everyone is all paid up. You boys want some milk and cookies? In our cynicism, we assume we've misread the advertisement, that there's an asterisk somewhere hidden from our view. So we hustle past God's grocery down to the devil's pawn shop where we feel assured we're getting an honest deal because it costs us something. The devil's got receipts and records and a bookkeeping department that's bigger than the retail floor. His products aren't great, and we're in hawk, deep, to the sky. But he's a lawyer, and somewhere in the stacks of forms we've signed, he assures us we'll be able to work off our debt, even if it takes a while. Down at God's Grocery, the legal department has a sign over the door that says they're out having a three-martini lunch with the bookkeeping department, and they won't be back for an eternity. God is a bad farmer, and he's a bad business manager. He's an even worse debt collector. Did you notice in our Romans passage, Paul starts a thought that he never really finishes, at least not the way we'd expect. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh. And then he sort of digresses a little bit before he comes back to saying, we're debtors to the Spirit, to God. Except that he doesn't. He never gets to that half of the syllogism. In fact, he completely changes the terms of the relationship, and it is right here that the Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. God isn't a bad farmer. He's not a bad business manager. He's not a bad debt collector. He's none of those things. He's a dad. My kids are five and seven. Do you have any idea how much money I've spent on them already? Me neither. There's no ledger packed away somewhere in my mind that I'll present to them when they turn 18 to demand payment with interest on their debts. And I'm not even that good of a dad. In our original sin, we have fundamentally misunderstood our relationship to God, and ever since, we've been running from a debt collector that doesn't exist. In fact, if we'd bother to look as we enter the devil's pawn shop, we'd spy an eviction notice at the door, stamped with the blood of the Lamb. Friends, our task in this world is nothing more and nothing less than the response of faith. A faith that trusts that God is a good dad who longs to give good gifts to his children, 
a faith that can outlast the impatience of a world that's hooked on productivity and efficiency, a faith that can rest without having to see the mysterious work of a seed in the soil to know that it's there, working to bring life out of death. I know that it feels like the world is eating itself alive right now, and I get that our impulse is to ratchet down our grip on what's rightfully ours, to match fear with fear and anger with anger. But God's kingdom hasn't gone slack. He hasn't abandoned his creation. He is coming on with a violence like a giant sequoia bursting out of a seemingly insignificant seed. He is still sowing the seed of his love throughout the entire earth. He still cries out in the streets an offer of milk and honey and bread at a purchase price of zero. Whoever has ears, let them hear.